Welcome, friends. Have a seat. Help yourselves to the drink. The captain and his crew are about to set sail. Tonight's voyage is through the murky depths of morality and its myriad of subsidies. It's pretty clear that humanity has been quite loose with its interpretations on what constitutes as moral, whether it be through actions of nature or rational thought. It's a complicated study, one that has very strong bias, more so than any other ideology, at least in my opinion. Morality is the status quo in which people encompass to their actions and ideas. It's that very status quo that has shaped human history for both good and for ill. Here's the thing, though. I'm left to ponder on the idea of objective and subjective morality. If we look at religion, for one example, how they structured their morality, for instance, they generally fall under these typical practices and principles. Loving one another, charity, modest standards of living, respect and kindness for one another. These in which are often taken as simply secular morals nowadays and have shown nearly universal practice throughout the world, albeit in different formats. So with these, for example, I think we can make the argument on what can be described as objective morality where the consensus on those ideas are almost universally agreed upon, which is fair enough. I think these practices at the base make a lot of sense. There's always room for compassion, respect, and mutualism for one another. Our society is not built on one solitary idea but rather incorporating the good parts of otherwise heavily flawed ideas, even though the result is still rather flawed, yet preferably refined for maximum efficiency. Then you have the idea of subjective morality, the process of where the validity of ideas and or actions are left to the individual to decide for themselves. This is where things get a little messy. After all, in such a state we live in, I think this tends to be the main variable in philosophical and political discourse. A general example would be the idea of murder being almost unilaterally abhorrent, yet we have things such as war, which if you simply take it at face value, is the simple legal murder on a massive scale. It's the mutual agreement of mass murderer against two rival factions, where you see from that perspective, it sounds absolutely horrifying. Yet you can make the argument on how such a thing is not only necessary, but just so as long as it's not a mere proxy war, 
you have reasons to justify it, such as defense or capitulation of an evil, immoral faction, ally aid, etc. Then you have cannibalism, which is a taboo that's seen morally reprehensible throughout most of the world, and yet in parts where it is actually legal or common practice, no one speaks out against it. Is it for the sovereignty of the faction or nation in question? Or is the taboo not nearly as heinous as one may think? After all, we now, based on a recent article, create, are creating human-ape hybrids for organ harvesting. Is that not at all comparable to stem cell research from aborted fetuses? Is there a line that should be drawn? Where does it end? Should it end at all? Is our perspective on such things limited? Or maybe we are blind to the horrors we are committing due to our own perspectives. One example, Joseph Mengele, for instance, Arbiter, angel of death, the doctor who did his horrid research on Auschwitz did so in the name of his twisted and horrid ideology. So then I ask, is subjective morality healthy for discussion or does it cause further division? How does subjective morality become objective morality? And due to the hypocritical approach to its study, is morality even necessary? Is it holding humanity back? Or is it what keeps us human? What are your thoughts on this, good sir? Well, if you look at the way we as a society grasp onto morality, it's definitely a varied um, mixed bag depending on the location that you that you are cohabitating in. And I think when it comes to actual like technological and you know pharmaceutical advancement, scientific advancement, it honestly <clears throat> there needs to be that tether to humanity in place the bridge no further that we're willing to go in pursuit of advancement, at least at whatever current iteration of morality we're experiencing. It's much more complex when it comes to scientific advancement with regards to morality in the, as in the general population, Because your average person isn't going to be thinking the same things the scientific community is thinking, though they may come to the same conclusions because at the end of the day, most scientific advancement is for the betterment of society. I say most because obviously I I still do not believe personally that the invention of the atomic bomb was in and of itself an advancement of, of human society. Unless you're looking, unless you're looking at the concept of mutually assured destruction as an advancement of of society as a whole, which I can't, for the life of me, agree with. Oh, 
Okay, well, be, not to try and cut you off, but I think that's a pretty interesting uh, uh, subtopic to explore. Uh, since it pertains to morality, do you believe that the invention of the atomic bomb was necessary or justifiable evil for the ending of the world of the world war because many historians have debated on whether or not the atomic bomb was an absolute necessity for for the conflict many will argue that it was necessary because of the thousand the potential uh, greater loss of life that the two factions would have had as a result whereas the atomic bomb simply accelerated um the the campaign against japan now the argument always that goes against it is that the sheer carnage and destruction that was left by a singular weapon is not perhaps something that humans should be permitted to control so where does it lie do we is the sheer is the sheer carnage of a particular type of weapon something that should not justify the rapid end of a what at that point was a six-year global conflict or was it something that needed to be done to prevent future slaughter later on because remember the japanese were were who would never surrender even under the most dire circumstances. Average statistics would show that one in 125 soldiers in the Allied armies or in the non-Japanese Axis armies would surrender. But, but for Japan, it was one in 2,500. They just simply didn't do it. Well, historians have gone back and forth as to whether or not that was the situation at hand, because whether soldiers were going to surrender had nothing to do with whether the actual leader of the, of the country was going to surrender. And there was speculation that there were actual treaties that were going to be written up prior to Hiroshima and Nagasaki occurring. Now, again, it's, I can't confirm or deny this because this is all speculation by historians. And my, my belief is, is there's a certain amount of, human capital that one can lose as a leader before all you're ruling over is a, a barren wasteland of ash. Not to say that the, 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 uh, the atomic bomb didn't accelerate that further, but if you look at the way things rolled out after the war and it, with the, the government of Japan basically being leashed by the, by the uh, American government for several, I think they, they were un, under, us for like 10, 20 years before they regained any form of their sovereignty. And obviously that trade-off was a several major bases of ours in their land, in their uh, territories. I don't know either way. Uh, as with all good things, it, it, there's usually the answer is somewhere in the middle. Was it necessary to stop the bloodshed? Honestly, <clears throat> from all of the, da the data I've looked at, Obviously, I could be missing something, and it could change my answer. But I don't think it was necessary. I think that there was already there was already negotiations in place. 
or at the very least that there were there were rumors that those things were occurring at least among people in the know i don't know if that was the case do i think that that that, that it needed that the end of the war needed to be punctuated in that way i don't know maybe it was something much greater than what it was it wasn't just to 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 finally put japan in their place maybe it was a sign to every other would be dissident at that point that only you know fire and doom lie ahead of you if it should you decide to escalate into a world war maybe that was the, the maybe that was the bell of mutually assured destruction to warn every every other nation that that was what was that was what was to come if if things kept going i don't that's know fair. that's fair because technically there is the, there is the speculation of that it was indeed a uh, a warning shot to the USSR, given the fact that they were the biggest threat to the U.S. at the time, aside from Germany and Japan. Well, that also happened because of the paradigm shift that occurred later in the world in World War II. Also, you know, we lost we lost them as an ally, and we also lost uh, China at that point as well. And. <clears throat> Those things were definitely in place, but it didn't end up inevitably stopping anything because we had the Cold War to follow that afterwards with the USSR. So whatever whatever intrinsic value there was in using that as a show of force, I don't think it ended up. I don't think it ended up doing what was intended, especially well, because of what had occurred in Cuba and the potential for nuclear nuclear uh, escalation that is occurring at that po- at that point during the cold war well the only reason why it ended up not being as effective was because there were uh, soviet spies during the manhattan project and they were able to take take enough information for them to create their own bomb themselves so had that not have been the had that not have happened that probably would have been a far more effective leisure because at the no, uh, mo- more effective tactic simply because the USSR would not have had an atomic bomb under development at that particular point in time. Remember, by 1953, that was when they already had a far more powerful bomb, the hydrogen bomb, in their hands. So Clearly, both nations were capable of uh, of mutual uh, mutual nuclear destruction. There was no way that either nation could risk complete catastrophe when they had, since they had both essentially similar weaponry. But if only one side had it, clearly it would have been a far more effective bargain strategy to intimidate. But I think I guess I think if you look at the way that history played out, though, and the amount of different countries that had access to nuclear technology by the end of all all of that, whatever value that may have held, as you said, was minimalized by the fact that it had already spread that far. And as you especially in twenty twenty one, our current situation, there isn't there. There's very there are very few blocks of nations that don't have access to one nuclear device or another, be it nuclear energy or nuclear um, warheads. It's just yep. a matter of how much 
and how it and how advanced the uh, uh per, the propulsion systems are. Obviously, I mean, looking at North Korea and how you know they're basically strapping nuclear warheads to decommission German uh, German uh, missile bases. It's it, it is what it is. Sure, I agree. It's an unfor- it's an unfortunate uh, uh, cat and mouse back and forth sort of uh, deal when it comes to like you say mutually assured destruction. But circling back to the original question that you gave me, the problem with science also is that from a moral perspective, their philosophy is very much a it's it's easier to ask for forgiveness than for permission scenario. And if you look at a lot of the advancements, like cloning's already been already occurred. We've already cloned things already. And no one no one batted an eye about, you know, us cloning sheep as far as uh, humans go, nobody is aware of anything specific, and I know that sounds tinfoily, but nobody specifically is aware of cloning humans at least as far as the US are concerned. I can't obviously confirm or deny any of that because I know nothing beyond you know whatever speculation and whatever current information we have on the process. As far as the hybrid things concerned, if you look at medical advancements We've basically been able to keep people alive using uh, different animal parts at this point. <clears throat> Use the re- replacement valves for hearts. We've used pig valves. Um, they've used uh, other animal parts, other animal valves. At this point, it's it's not even that shocking. And at the very least, with with the uh, w- with the monkey human hybrids. At least the DNA parallels are enough for the, the the rejection rate should definitely be lower. Now, as now now if they're creating, you know, human monkey hybrids who are living and sentient, then it's a completely different scenario than them just cultivating, uh, you know, sedated you know half animal creatures that don't have a, an upper brain function and they're just harvesting organs off of it. That's really at the end of the day the major headache, I would see. If these things are alive and they're killing them and harvesting them for organs, then there is a world of moral of moral black that needs to be carved through before anybody's going to allow that shit to occur. And that's fair. And and that's fair, but like that still doesn't really okay. The reason why that ends up being so morally gray is due to the fact that it is at least part human because let's face it you can argue we do potentially do worse such as when we you know harvest you know animals for meat like we we can argue all day on how exactly we do it doesn't change the fact that we essentially slaughter them by the millions every year for our own no, for for our own diet the only reason why most of us aren't really phased by it is one we don't really see it and two um they're animals not we we don't have as a deep a connection with them as we would with this sort of creation 
Because even if, personally, in my personal opinion, even if this thing wasn't sentient, let alone aware, the fact that it is still part human and we're harvesting its organs for the for the for for medical use, it's it's still a rather wretched thought to consider. But that's just me, I suppose. Like I said, it's it all comes back to uh, for that comes back to morality having a more biased perspective on them uh, on things and i think at least personally that's how i feel about that sort of matter but it only but my logical side comes to the point where since it is being used to you know help those that are in need of replacement organs and stuff like is this is our own emotional and moral attachments to these ideologies are what keeping us back or holding us back from the progress or is it what makes us human and makes us realize the the true hard that we've become in our relentless pursuit of knowledge I think it does both. I think that the um, <clears throat> the necessity to, like I said before, the necessity to have these res- these restrictions forces the scientific community to be more uh, thoughtful in how they achieve their ends. If they were just given carte blanche to use whatever methods necessary to get results the potential for loss of life and, you know, mutation and other sorts of, you know, potentially lethal viruses and other things that may occur from the, you know, the dalliances and then the scientific and biological nightmares that we've, you know, set forth for ourselves would be nigh infinite. Having those moral, those moral, uh, parameters in place allows one society to allow science the scientific community to continue operating with relative autonomy within the reason within the constraints of financing and allows for science to present to the public you know a finished product that has a significant level of quality that that any given person can look at and say that it, 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 at very least fits a specific criteria. I think I see your point. It's necessary and it's, it's necessary and it's not the, the level of restraint. I think if you talk, depending on who you talk to in their profession, that the moral, the, the objective morality and the, that, that governs what's do, done in the scientific community, at least the above board stuff that we're aware of is much more restricting to what most people in the scientific community would see justified 
or justifiable, I would say. Whereas anybody, especially with what you were talking about with stem cell research, there is a moral gray attached to it. And while I'm not going to go out of my way to petition people to think in a specific way about abortion or, you know, human life as it, as it stands at that particular phase of human life, I, I would state that if, if, the, if the material was already there and we don't have anything in place that requires us to do any kind of, you know, further ritualistic things that would be necessary for the disposal of genetic material, as it were, I'd say that those things would be, it's, it's free, it's free real estate, I guess would be the best way to look at it. The problem ends up being is when you have a certain amount of moral outrage to just the process of abortion as a whole, anything you do with the genetic material that's left over is considered abhorrent anyways. So that push and pull is definitely hampering to the process now, this didn't stop stem cell research from being furthered because stem cell stem cells still existed in other types of uh, other types of tissue structure. So we were able to still be able to get to that point, even without the the, the fetal material. So they did end up finding a way around. It just took longer. Point if you look at the the records as to why they were using stem cells from from the fetuses was because they were fledgling cells that had the had the malleability necessary to be able to change into whatever they they deemed fit so they were looking for cellular cellular tissue that was much more formable and that was the the, the inherent advantage of fetal tissue but obviously we found our way around it <clears throat> With regards to what you were talking about with the hybrids, like I said, I have no idea. This was just sprung on us, like, what, a month ago? Less than yeah. a month ago? Yeah, it's it's very recent, relatively speaking. And it's something where they were already in, they were already doing it. So clearly they weren't asking for, they were neither asking for permission nor forgiveness at this point. And I'm sorry, I think if you're if you're willing to go and say we're doing it and there's nothing you can do about it, you're, you'll find that, uh, that that society reflexively crushes those particular situations. I mean, just look at what's look at the stem cell research nonsense. And I mean, we're already talking about a scenario where there's already been movies about creating genetic clones and then harvesting them for their organs, the island. And the moral ambiguity of that was something that was very much in play with that movie. So it's just based, it's, I mean, clearly it's still, it's still one more uh, burden to bear as we try to find the, the reason to whether or not to uh, continue forward with, uh, with these types of acts, at the very least. If it were up to us, I don't think it would continue. But if you look at animal testing within the you know over the past fifty or sixty years, it's never really stopped them from doing similar things. I mean, if I recall, weren't they cultivating human 
human organs or human body parts off of mice at some point. Like they're growing ears and noses and stuff. I feel like that was something I'd heard about within the past few years as well. Only something you would see in cartoon media. If that was really did, Jesus Christ. Circling back to your the other part of your monologue, you were talking about subjective morality. Yes. And as a case-by-case scenario, subjective morality is just, just a projection of our own personal ethical code, as it were. What we deem correct as far as our own philosophical bent is concerned with interacting with the, with the world we live in, in whatever way we deem, deem correct. Now, I think the, the flexibility of subjective morality is nearly endless as far as um, most people are concerned. I think you tend to have a lot of variables in place, but moreover, you do have a lot of uh, similarities as well, because a person's subjective morality is usually colored by the objective morality of their surroundings. If there's a if if there are folkways and mores in place in the place that they live in, it's going to color their subjective morality as they develop and and go forth into the world. And on an individual basis, this obviously presents itself in differing forms and with varying results as it were okay so from my understanding subjective morality at the very least uh gathers a is gathered largely based on experience and environment yes it's definitely to that point uh, it's it's the nature nurture scenario of how we grow as human beings, but it's also in a lot of ways, it's something that can go counter to objective morality depending on where we find ourselves. Something that you might specifically get away with in one part of the world may not garner you that level of you know respite in another part. And we do carry a, a shard of that objective real, objective uh, morality of our of our growing place, or at least our, our our roots, as it were. Now, obviously, mental disorders, sociopathy, and the like can color subjective morality in various ways. And if you look at a lot of the mental gymnastics that are done by different different talking heads online and by you know criminals as far as the public judicial systems th- that we have access to you know the, those people ascribe to it's very much a character study for anybody who's willing to look into those particular um, <laughs> su- subjects as it were Honey. 
if you say so. <laughs> oh, I thought so. Yeah, but uh, okay. Now that is fair. Now, sorry, I'm trying to collect my thoughts. I'm sorry, that was a bit to digest. My apologies. No, no, it's, it's all right. I mean, what would this bar be if not, uh, if if it didn't have its own um, potent drinks to consume? <laughs> true that, true that. Would you consider something like subjective morality a inhibiting factor or no 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 wait how does something like subject our subjection subjective morality become objectively so because at one point individual ideas become more and more mutually consensual doesn't just stick like again like the ideas of uh kindness and and you know and mutual you know respect for one another that's not something that has been you know only come up with by individuals and left it as such or it's not like it's something that i should say it's not something that has always been uh, a universal thing it's something that eventually had to start off as a um, an individual idea. Well, when you look at the term, this actually can spread to a, di- a couple of different places, but we'll try and stick with what we're talking about as far as moral con- constructive uh, building blocks. When a consensus is formed, at least by, by what I've, what I've recollected, When a consensus is formed on a specific course of action or a best practice, as it were, generally speaking, that tends to be written in stone, and that creates the subjective morality from the, uh, I'm sorry, objective morality from the subjective pool. If you're looking at subjective morality from an individual basis, everybody has their own specific uh, way way, way that they move around in life. The parallels will obviously always be there because in any, in any polite society, we adhere to the, the laws, as it were, you know, however loosely or, or tightly that may be. But when it comes to something that is relatively concrete and enough people, as you said, view it as a correct course of action, that's where you can create that objective reality. Or I'm sorry, objective morality. Damn it! <laughs> no, you're you're right either way because if it's something that everyone agrees with, then it becomes the reality of that uh, environment. It becomes the standard in which others uh, uh, adhere to. Fair enough. It's just um, I think that where you have the breakdown ends up being is the upbringing of any individual. When the, when you have that, when you have that clash of subjective and objective, 
is usually in the the those things being different to a, to the point where there is conflict. Obviously, that's a very basic way of looking at it, but that's what we're looking at here. We're looking at the building blocks. So, being as level and and uh, vanilla as humanly possible is necessary to be able to convey why you have you know broken laws by people and murder and all uh, other stuff there's irreconcilable differences between the subjective and objective moralities that are in play and, and obviously when it comes to objective objective morality they the the, the value is in the establishment or at least the house always wins scenario in in place very rarely is someone who someone's subjective morality going to win out when it's something extreme. Now, when it comes to much more banal things like petty theft or uh, property rights or you know basic trespassing in areas by accident, things where the gray can definitely be much more in focus than the black and white of the two things, you'll definitely start to see those the, the things m- m- separate a lot a lot more cleanly when it comes to murder without a certain amount of the you know, amount of backstory, you tend to lose credibility in the face of the objective morality in place, unless it's by self-defense and you knew that you were going to die in likelihood murdering that person was unnecessary. True. True. Fair enough. I hope that helps. I know you were kind of chewing on that. (laughs) Well, it's, I'm only pondering upon it because the idea of morality is often the very thing that shapes us on how we set course of action. And it just, let's just say, even when we have an idea as to how we go about with progress, we end up doing things that leave more questions than answers. Hence why I put the dilemma of murder and whatnot, because it is indeed a very strange, we seem to often think that we have uh, a general consensus on what we think of such a, of such acts. And yet we find ourselves doing things that would be would could technically be considered uh, that very act, but we do and we don't think much of it. Well, all right. When you because uh, we were talking about this on the forefront, when you look at <clears throat> looking at war military actions, anything that would involve either a loss of life or heavy casualties on either side of the conflict, however many sides there may be, the rationale is usually based on either common defense of uh, hearth and home, as it were, or mutually beneficial advancement of one in one form or another to the national to the national benefit yes checks and, and balances 
Correct. And this is usually viewed as the rationalization for such actions by any group, no matter who ends up being who ends up being in that case. Now, looking at previous wars, the two world wars, there is a lot more moving parts in place and definitely differing uh, countries because the whole prospect is much more elaborate and labyrinthine for anybody who isn't willing to go and, you know, crawl through the, the different moving parts of it. I would but say far- that's been that way for the past 500 years though. Yeah. But if you look at things, if you look at uh, some conflicts, there tends to be much more cut and dry reasons for things occurring with regards to like world war one and, you know, the, arch- the, the, the uh, archduke Ferdinand and that whole nonsense. It's it's much more the, the reason that it occurred was a domino effect of alliances that a, had brought a world war into into focus, whereas right. whereas at least with the Germany with the Germany uh, Italy Japan scenario, it was direct conflict that was bringing that that was bringing all the rest of the world stage into things. And it wasn't until we, uh, the America was America was directly attacked that we even intervened at all. I mean, I see where you're getting at. Um, that's a that's the bare gist of it, at least when it comes to that particular conflict. It's a like, uh, but I do get I do get your gist of it. Like some. Like a lot of some wars are farm, relatively speaking, they're a lot easier to uh, understand when it comes to the motivations behind things and the, the deciding factors that would erupt the conflicts. And others are far more labyrinthian in design. Right. Um, again, war is a complicated scenario, anyways, because there, as you said, there are so many different factors in place and nuance and and it's much less black and white when you start looking at all of the individual lego blocks that build into the entirety of the conflict especially mm-hmm. because you have to peel back a lot of the propaganda that was put in place by the differing the different uh establishments exactly. to be able to really understand the meat and potatoes of the experience Fair enough. I agree. That's why. I, that's why I mentioned that it was at the bare bones. Only a novice would be able to see it from a black and white standpoint. But at the same time, it's not entirely infallible for that perspective to be uh, brushed aside because it comes because morality often finds us at the very basics. Of you know, no, of uh, well, the basics of a rational thought. Yes, but if you look at the way those things are constructed, it's it's by design for your average citizens. When you look at the way that those things are um, set up from a, a vantage point of um, of propaganda. Let's just start from the propaganda aspect. 
what's your objective to, as far as, as as a government body is concerned is to give your general populace a reason to put accelerate things to a point where you can p- move the war machine forward because obviously without average citizenry especially with conscription you aren't going to convince people to put their lives down on the line without a overarching goal or foe well and that's the moral great that go i'm sorry go ahead no, I mean, you're not wrong, but to be fair, that's only a relatively modern thing because aside from prescription being a thing throughout all of history, the perspective on war was very different than it is today. Let, going back to World War I again, prior to it, uh, war, was, war was something that that the majority of the world saw as a rite of passage, uh, a uh, a venue of heroes, and essentially, war was romanticized before the before the Great War, and it was only through the realities of the grim the grim attritions of of trench warfare in in, in Europe. France in particular was when people realized that it was nowhere near the illustrious uh, um, golden age that no, the golden thing that uh, that we would read from uh, from books throughout history. It was definitely a lot of far more savage conflict than we could have ever anticipated and it took something as catastrophic as the great war for the world to see that and never never again has war been put in the old light that it used to have now it's a stigma of of a waste of human life and savagery Right. But the problem is, and if you look at the way, and I am going to put our current governments in, in the spotlight with regards to this, it, it's a relative age scenario. If you look at the relative age of most of the people who are in power, the value of war to them is relative to the fact that they are from an age where war had a certain romanticism to it to a point moreover the profitability of war is something that we as a, as a country have very much adhered to as a profit engine we whether um, or not we admitted now, it directly now we're getting to the validity of proxy wars fair enough are are proxy wars something that we can le- is are they tr- are they something we can truly justify or are they even fa- are they far worse than than actual wars where they have genuine reasons to uh, uh to erupt 
because that's what a proxy war is. A proxy war is one artificially made for things such as uh, military profit and gain. It's not, no, not, has no real foundings on, on uh, the conventional reason of war. It's almost as if we're talking like, uh, like something straight out of a James Bond movie or something out of Metal Gear or something. I think if you look at proxy wars in, in, in any format, the, the artificiality of it, it goes back to the conversation I've had about the concept of conflict as an accelerant for a society. And it's something we talked with with Eric and we've, I've, I've talked with with Phil. It, it's these are things that if you and if you strip it down to the way most of the philosophical uh, can, most of the philosophical bents are of the people who are running things. The, I think it is not so much a moral necessity for them, or at the very least, a propulsion system. It's just what is being produced. Because if you look at uh, the Americas as an economy, it's not that we, if you look at what we make, it seems at the very core of it, if you look at, at the brass tax of it, we generally make war as our main export of things. And it's something that we do with a grand amount of consistency. So if you're looking at the value of proxy war as something that we just are, are, are off to do, it's, it, it's much, much, much less moral than, than even you and I would imagine. It's, it's a commodity that is traded and sold. It is something that is just done with, with soulless efficiency to the point where you'd almost think that there, there, there was a much more mechanical mind behind the whole process or a much more analytical one at the very least. Although the, although the prior actually has me even more concerned because imagine it's all only simply done almost autonomously, almost as if though we're do doing so more on, basically by instinct rather than <laughs> I guess we will be really considered be uh, uh, warlike people more than so before. Maybe we've become modern Rome or I should say the modern ancient Rome. Yeah. But if you, if you go and look at, look at the way that the concept of empires is, we are at the point an empire. Oh, and all more is our, and more is our export. Agreed. Now, now like, I guess, like I said, that's a very black and white way to look at it. But if you're, if you're looking at the most extreme, like lack of moral compass, the value in inherent in just making constant war, there isn't any. It's purely a profit machine. There's no, and and the and the and the wheels are greased with the blood with the blood of good men, as it were. I know I'm being metaphorical at this point, but if you look at no, it, that's literally no, that the cost in human lives. Well, that well that 
that's where I, that's what I'm saying. No, you're actually making a lot of sense because there comes to the uh, the added question: Does the does the cost the 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 damage dealt is it worth the cost? It was the was the effect the the current level of uh we should say uh paradise that we i don't know if i don't really want to use that term but uh up the oh prosperity there we go does the prosperity we've gained from this uh you know and this cycle of of ceaseless proxy wars is it worth no is it worth the human damage and you can make the argument that for the very least if you're profiting off of that if you're the one benefiting from that prosperity yeah because your lives are simply that much easier than you would be outside that as selfish as that may be, but because we live in a world with limited resources, it, it, it makes sense, at least on the, logis- the logistical standpoint, to seize what you can and build upon your empire with what you acquire from war. And if there's anything that the U.S. has been very good at, as you said, it'd be war. The one major drawback, and I think you would agree with me in this uh, this assessment, is that there is with 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 all of the accords and things in place to to halt any further expansionist um, philosophies of old. The value of war is been changed over the course of time. Absolutely. Whereas whereas the conflict of expansionism within the British empire, um, even the America, even America to an extent, any of the other European countries that had expanded out into the, into the, you know, North and South America, that, that there's the, the intrinsic value is was there for that specific era. Whereas now, War feels like a perpetual motion machine where the necessity for having a bigger target, something for your society to focus on so that it can continue to further prosperity is it, it, it feels outdated at this point because the majority of people are so linked up to the global and information sphere it would be very difficult for you to rationalize and convince any populace who has uh, has a a modicum of technological savvy, and that's it could be just as basic as being able to handle a smartphone and look at web pages. You can't really convince somebody that it's necessary for those things to continue on, and you could see the breakdown happen when George W. Bush was in power, because very rarely was anybody in favor of those things, especially as the information became much more readily available, that the things that were being told to them were fabrications. 
I think Obviously, that, on the front end, there was a lot more patriotism because there was a catalyst point in 9-11. But looking further down and the and even to the even to now in 2021, where the war on terror has never truly ended, the loss in life and the human capital, if you had the hindsight to be able to tell the people at that point that there was no point in continuing on this way, you probably would have. I mean, perhaps, but I think that's more on. I think you made a grand. I think you made an excellent point with the, uh, with the connectivity that we had with the internet. Because, because if you told if you told the people back in 1939 that World War II was going to be the most destructive war in all of history, and that it was going to cost over 50 million lives. The majority of people, except for the United States, would still participate in that war, regardless if it if it meant to stop a juggernaut that was being built in Germany. But agreed, agreed. But that was also something where that was not a fabrication. No, there was a situation that was a devising of our own error, like arming, like arming people in the Middle East at some point and then being shocked as when they took the weapons we gave them and pointed them directly at us. This is something that this was something that was created by our own folly, whereas the situation with Germany wasn't just the fact that. They, they had found a way to economically recover from World War One, which they did by using extreme measures to do so. It was also in the fact that they were basically left left to the point where they, they literally had nothing, nothing to lose when they were at that point and proceeding to do things that were by more all moral, all objective moral, moral compasses atrocious. The thing is, is that we sort of did have uh, a a hand in it, not necessarily in uh, not necessarily helping them build their war machine, but rather we knew we were aware of them building up and sure and, and, and breaking the Treaty of Versailles. And we chose to do nothing. Britain has ha- Britain had intel of Germany's uh, recouping of their ar- the rebuilding of their army at least a decade before not before not before uh, the invasion of Poland and they still did nothing. So I would I would argue that at least at least on behalf of World War II, that this was going to be a conflict that they would they would still do so, even at the point even if you told them ahead of time. The the thing that I was trying to uh, attest to is that the um, in the modern era where we have connected ourselves far more through uh, through internet technology than any other time period, that has essentially made us. While, while at some points less compassionate, in other ways more to, more united as a glo- as a global collective than ever before. 
And I think that's what helps at the very least. Uh, it, ke- it helps people uh, resist the idea of war when their government tries to look for a reason to initiate it. This is why at least at every single point since, since, uh, uh, since George W. Bush's uh, uh, first term as president, that we've almost in unanimously uh, turned down the idea of war for like twenty for for for, over, for nearly twenty years. And that should be said something, considering that the twenty years before George Bush's uh, presidency, we were in war. And quite fond of it. The, the The problem with that is, is that the war on terror that was constructed after during George W. Bush's term has never truly abated. And while it is not a true war, the tools being used are no are no different. It's yeah, just the scope true. at this point. And while the loss of life is much more mitigated across time it's still a measurable loss of life. Yeah, that's true. And I'm not going, and while I, while I don't want to go into any even further down the rabbit hole, because I think we've already started down that way. And I don't think, I think as far as the general consensus on war is completely irrelevant to the fact that it still continued even with that sentiment in place. Well, because there were gov- there there were elements in the government who did not con- who were not concerned with any pushback that was happening within within the within society, they were willing to do so, go forward with it regardless. Hence, why Syria was a headache. Hence, why oh. everything going on in Ukraine is still something that's going on. Hence, why we still have people in Afghanistan. To be fair the- with Ukraine. That is a conflict that has stemmed all the way since back since as early. Since as back far back as the Napoleonic Wars, that is a uh, that is something that still has pretty old historical attachments to it. So um, it's like the the conflict with with Ukraine is not necessarily purely modern. There's still plenty of ties back to the to the old Napoleonic Wars, but more in specifically the Crimea War. So. There's that. Yeah, well, it's not really stopping, and yet it still hasn't stopped because when it comes to the old countries, those those animosities never go away. And no, I find I find that. that the modern sentimentality of of, of uh, North America, the United States specifically, while we are still warlike in the way that we act. We're not burning on specific ancient enmities the way that, you know, the greater European area still does, where those where those slights never go away. They're always there and they will always be acted upon when the option when the opportunity arises, because those groups never get to technically separate from each other the way that uh, the United States is separate from the European stage. It's a very yeah. intri- it's a very unique perspective, and that's a lot of the reason why the, the European mindset versus the American mindset is much more interesting. Would be the best way to put it, 
I would call younger, considering that our perspective only comes from the fact that we are not the nation. And I'm not trying to bring race into it, but we're just not the we're not the na- the the native peoples who who lived here. We our history only goes back as far as the early, the the late 1500s, early 1600s. We like we're extremely young compared to the nations of old in the you know in, in Europe. They've had hundreds, some go over two thousand years of his uh, of history. They have an established group there, so yeah, their conflicts are are much more deep rooted. We are barely buds that are that have yet to sprout by comparison. So, so I'll, let me posit this question to you. If, if you had the ability, let's, I know this is hypothetical. If you had yes. the ability to take the land masses and crack them at the, the natural boundaries of each of the countries and separate each of these groups from each other, do you think those enmities would go away or do you think they would stay? They were not going away. They're going to remain. The problem with that is that the con- each of the conflicts are still deep-rooted with one another. They're, they're, they're likely not going to uh, go away anytime soon, especially since you would not have the ability to divide the land amongst the people to – the way that they would all that they would all be satisfied with it's the same idea the concept with palestine and israel you are not going to give palestine return uh palestine to the to the muslims without enraging the israelites because they both claim equal share claims on that same part of the land regardless true very true it's deep man it's deep yeah like you said it's the one downside when it comes to this sort of thing is that everyone has a very it's a very very complicated uh, chain circle events that apparently roots that has very old roots going across centuries, and it's only in it, you can argue that it's only been uh, enhanced by our, you know, our both both our objective and subjective moralities to come with it. It's a very very complicated question that I don't think we'll have a perfect answer to, even with the time that we've taken this evening. That's fair enough. With that being said, I think we've discussed what we can on this subject. I agree. I think we've taken it to its logical conclusion. I think we've uh, beaten it into the ground, as it were. Well... If that's if that's the case, just know, ladies and gentlemen, that no matter how you want to approach things in life, 
just know on the grounds that we all have our different perspectives on the matter of things. And while we do have our differences, let us have our common, that what we have in common, keep us from, no, keep us together. And uh, allow us to grow together and move forward. Thank you for listening in to the Captain Mediocre's Haunted Tiki Bar. We are humbled that you have given us your time to listen to us discuss things. If you would like to hear more from us, you'd like to see more from us, uh, I have personally a account on Twitter under the name of Ragnarok Knight. My co-host here also has an account on Twitter as well. He goes under the name of Punk Toast. We also have a Facebook page under the name of Captain Mediocre's Haunted Tiki Bar. If you would like to uh, check that out for updates on when we have our sessions. We also have our voicemail link in the show notes. We will be having voicemails read during the course of our records going forward, as long as there are voicemails to be, re- to be listened to. Um, any further inquiries on that, uh, do feel free to PM either of us on Twitter, or you can go through the actual Facebook page to ask us any queries as well. Thank you so much to all of you. Safe travels to you all. Cast off, friends. <laughs>